Okay, so we're going to wrap up chapter 26 to 31, which is six whole chapters. But first, let's just review the structure of the book. Let's look again at the big picture now that we've studied more than half the book. So good job, everyone. So this is going to be the third movement or the, of the book or the second movement, depending on how you look at it. A, several weeks ago when we started, we talked about two different ways to divide the book. So one way that we can divide it is into three sections where we set up, we set up the camp in chapters 1 to 10. In chapters 11 to 25, we have the rebellions and all the wilderness wanderings. And then in chapter 26 to 36, we're actually preparing to dwell in the land. So that's one way to look at it, the three movements, 1 to 10, 11 to 25, and 26 to 36. And then the other way to look at it is that there's two movements. Chapters 1 to 25 is the first generation, and then chapter 26 to 36 is the second generation. And so it's either the second or the third movement, depending on how you look at it. And the divisions, they're not that cut and dry, and we don't know the details of it all. But chapter 26 is starting us out with a new census. And so we are told that God promised that we are told that all of the people that God promised would die are now actually dead. So just let that sink in for a minute. That is a hard truth. So either way that you look at it, this last portion of the book is pointing us forward. The book of Numbers, it doesn't have a climactic ending to it. Instead, we have clusters of stories and law that are prepping us for the next thing. And it can feel random and clunky at times but it's setting us up for the people to conquer and settle in the promised land. This section of the book answers the question for us, how then should the people live once they are settled in the land? We get a variety of new laws and laws that are transformed in some way to address this idea that they will no longer be slaves and wanderers in the wilderness. They're going to be in the land. This, we are moving forward now. Up until now, they've either been in bondage or constantly traveling. So we're preparing for a new context, which is so exciting to see. And so this section starts off with another familiar story, another census. So we get to the second census and we ask ourselves, why are we doing this again? And we've already answered this question. We are counting a new generation. God has shown his faithfulness in that despite the old generation dying in the wilderness and despite them spending the last 40 years in a place that would not necessarily lead to fruitfulness and multiplication, the people have been fruitful and they have multiplied while wandering around in the desert. At this point in the book, all that remains of the old generation are Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and we know that Moses' days are numbered. God has stayed true to his promise that he would punish the old generation. And because he's going to stay true to his promise to take the new generation into the land, we are also counting on the people we are also counting the people yet again to prepare for war and to prepare to divvy up the land by tribe. So here we are again on the edge of the promised land. So this chapter here is a new beginning, and I like to call it Chap I like to call this chapter Census Take Two, but this census is also different from the first census, isn't it? And, and in what ways? We get more family information, and we get little tidbits that point us backwards to reflect. 
And so they're telling us something important. These extra details here seem to mostly be about other people who died because of their sin or their unbelief. But then there is one tidbit of information that we get that stands out and is a preview of the next chapter. In verse 33, we're told about a man from the tribe of Manasseh named Zelophehad, who had five daughters, five daughters, but no sons. So then these daughters of Zelophehad become the subject of the first half of chapter 27, and it's a beautiful story. The main thing I'd like to point out about Zelophehad's daughters is that they display for us the belief that we have been looking for, that belief that Joshua and Caleb have shown us the different spirit They are sure of God's promise of the land, and they don't want to miss out on it. They have decided to take God at his word, which is such a contrast from the unbelief of the people shown in the previous chapters. I also just want to point out that they have faith in who God is, and they see that God cares for for the vulnerable and the outcasts. And so they approach Moses, confident that he and God are going to take their case into consideration. They were women and not in a place of power, and they were concerned that their father's name would be blotted out and not have inheritance in the good land that God was giving them. Why should their father's name be taken away because they had no sons? This was their case before Moses, and God did see them. He saw their hearts, and he provided for them and gave Moses a new law that would provide for someone else in this position again. They believed that God would see their position and be gracious to them and their faith in this chapter. Their faith in this chapter is so refreshing. So moving on to the second half of chapter 27, here we see Joshua is chosen by God to take over for Moses. And this is important. This is significant. Let's let's pay attention here because We have the last of the original leaders who led God's people out of Egypt, the last of that inner circle. Remember, we talked about the concentric, the circles of holiness. The last of that inner circle closest to God is going to now be replaced. Moses has been their leader for a long time, and he has seen them through everything. And Moses himself is even showing concern in verse 17. He asks God, will you appoint a man over this community? so they won't be like sheep without a shepherd? So side note on that verse 17, isn't this question that Moses asks interesting? Will you appoint a man over this community so they won't be like sheep without a shepherd? To me, it feels like in addition to asking for a new leader for the people, he's he's also prophesying about Christ. Christ calls himself the good shepherd in John's gospel. He's the one who will lead the people. And while God is going to answer Moses' request, Joshua and every leader after him will fall short and point us to that one leader who will not fall short. So God tells Moses that Joshua is going to take over for him. And we find out a few things about Joshua here. First of all, we're told he has the spirit within him. We know that Joshua has been with Moses. He's been with him at Mount Sinai. He's been shown to be a man of belief, and he's been learning from Moses all along. But then also, we're also told that Joshua is not going to be just like Moses. The text tells us that he instead will inquire of the Lord by going to Eleazar the priest, who will then inquire of the Lord on behalf of Joshua and the people. So this is different. Moses talked 
directly to God. God gave Moses the law. Joshua will be the next leader and will take over, but he's not going to be equal to Moses' authority. And so in this way, Moses is distinguished from Joshua, but um, let's, not feel, let's not feel too bad for him because he gets to lead the people into the promised land and see all of God's promises fulfilled, and he even gets a whole book named after him. So let's move on here to chapters 28 and 29. Now, after all of that, these chapters can, we read these chapters and they can feel a little boring to us, right? One source said that this was the longest running list of offerings in the whole Torah. But these chapters are important to us because they also can point us forward. They're actually giving us instructions for how the people are to live and worship God in the land. At the beginning of the book, when we were in the first six chapters, we were setting up camp. God was showing them how to orient themselves in their spaces around him. He was showing them what it meant to have sacred space. And now, here at the edge of the promised land, he is gracious to them in that he shows them how to orient their time around him. So an idea of sacred time. The point that I want to make here is that God is showing the people a different way to orient their lives around him with their time and with their rhythms. He has graciously given them new rhythms in their lives to help them remember him. Remember how we've talked about remembering, which is such a big theme in numbers, remembering the Lord. And then also remembering so that we therefore believe and not sin. Remember the tassels that we talked about in chapter 15 and how, that, how those are to help us remember and not sin. Well, in these two chapters, the people are given ways to remember the Lord in their days and their weeks and their months and their years. And these rhythms were for their good to help them with their remembering. These rhythms were also a way for them to have communion with him in a way that they could fellowship and just enjoy him. This was for their good so they could enjoy God and celebrate his goodness. And I think these, I think these are principles we can apply to our lives now, too. God knows that we are prone to forget and wander. We so easily can make everything about us, but our calendars should be oriented in a way that points us to Christ. Now, we don't offer sacrifices in the same way that the people of Israel did, and most of us don't observe Jewish holidays, but we can learn something here about how God wants us to orient our lives around him. When you look at your calendar, do you see regular rhythms of stopping and remembering? From our day-to-day -day rhythms to our yearly celebrations, we need to have these intentional moments because our hearts are prone to wander. The rhythms that God lays out here in these chapters can help us with how to create rhythms for ourselves with our prayer, our worship, and our study. And I do think it's significant that the very first offerings that we're told about here are the daily offerings. A lamb was to be sacrificed in the morning and in the evening. Can't we too apply this in our prayer life? to thank the Lord first thing in the morning and to pray to him when we wake up, when we lay down at bedtime, bookending our day. And he shows us in these chapters how he gives us a Sabbath rest also to incorporate in our lives and remember him and draw us into fellowship with him. And so these chapters are pointing us to Christ, who is our rest because of his finished work for us. 
So now on to chapter 30. And it's hard to know how this chapter fits into the story. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about this chapter, except to say that God is showing here how his order of how he created the family and the marriage covenant to work lines up with making a vow. I think it's important to say that this is not saying that women are not as good as men or not able to make decisions. This chapter is not here because God didn't feel that women could handle being able to make a vow. We know this too because it says, it talks about divorced or widowed women making vows to God that were binding. But what I do believe it's saying, with some help from some commentaries, of course, is that a woman's desire to serve the Lord with a vow still needed to be in submission to the covenantal relationship of her marriage or in or into submission to her father if she is still in his house. It was important for a woman's vows to be in line with her marriage or family relationship and not in conflict with it. God is a God of order. He has created an order for us to follow in our families and desires for our hearts to be obedient in this. So I think the point here is that a woman was not pleasing God by making a vow if her husband or her father didn't approve of it if those who have headship over her do not approve of it. So two other short notes about this chapter before we move on to the last chapter. I do believe that this is God's grace to women in that he releases a woman from her vow if her husband disagrees with it. And note that he even puts the responsibility of the husband if he disagrees later. And then another thing, I think a good takeaway from this chapter, some more applicable, something more applicable to our lives is that we want to be careful in our speech and in our decisions. Note how the word rash is used more than once here. We can only speculate on what exactly the author is speaking to, but let us not be foolish with our words. So now that we've talked about that, let's go to chapter 31, our last chapter of this week. So here we have Moses bringing together an army to destroy Midian, a group of people within Moab, And we've seen them before. They've been leading Israel astray. So this is the group of people who were involved in the the events of chapter 25, where Moab was seducing Israel. Remember that at the end of that chapter, God tells Moses to destroy them because of the idolatry that they have led Israel into. So that command gives us a preview of what's going to happen in this chapter. Now, there's a lot to wrestle with in this narrative, and I, before we begin, I just want to address a few things. When we get to a part of the Bible like this, we feel uncomfortable with all the death that is being carried out by God's people, or in some instances, by God himself, like in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah or in the flood. I just want to acknowledge that this can be difficult to understand, this chapter can be difficult to understand. And I would like to suggest that this is partially because there are characteristics of God that can be difficult to understand. His justice, his intolerance of sin, and people who don't acknowledge him for who he is. And it's not fun to think about, but those who don't believe in our God and don't trust in him for their salvation will not spend eternity with him. This isn't new information, but it's not something we enjoy dwelling on but we have to face it here. And I would also encourage us to just lean into those parts of God because if we don't, we're really missing out on the whole of who he is. 
all the parts of God. So this battle between Israel and Midian is what we would call a holy war, a war where God is carrying out justice against a wicked nation by commanding Israel to destroy them in the Old Testament. So there's a whole explanation of holy war in Deuteronomy 20 that I would definitely point you to if you're wanting to know more about this. How do we know that this specifically is a holy war? So there's a few clues. First of all, God commands them to go to war. He commands them, and specifically because they intentionally led Israel into idolatry at Balaam's advice. He makes it clear that this battle is to carry out his vengeance, as it says in verse 3. Balaam had figured out that the only strategy to defeat Israel was to get them to turn away from their God. And so in case there was any doubt still about who Balaam is, we're told here about the true condition of his heart, and then he actually dies in this battle. The other clue that we have is that Phineas leads them into battle and takes some of the holy things with him. So Israel is obedient and destroys the city, but when they return to camp, Moses is angry. Why? It's because they allowed all the women to live, the very women who had led the, had led the people into idolatry earlier. But then what happens next is bizarre. Moses tells them in verse 16 to kill all the boys and every woman who has slept with a man, but to spare the young girls and virgins. Why? Doesn't this feel strange? So I'll say that this has been a question I've wondered about and still am stewing over. After looking at it for a bit um, and reading commentaries, the best possible interpretation I've found was that this was God's grace to these girls who were spared because then they could be grafted into Israel and would have an opportunity to actually be a part of God's people. But the boys had to be killed because their offspring would continue on the line of Midian and the non-virgin women had to die too because of their seduction of the people. But I just want, again, to acknowledge the complexity of what's happening here and just confess that I don't have my mind fully wrapped around it. But it is good to wrestle with these things. But before we finish, I just want to point out that no one actually dies in this battle. Isn't that amazing? If you look at the end of the chapter, the officers acknowledge the Lord's part in the battle and want to offer him their gold as a memorial. Because in verse 49, They say that they counted the soldiers and no one was missing, which is such an awesome detail. And then lastly, I just want to point out too that there's a greater narrative at play here. When we talk about holy war, we're talking about God's judgment on a particular nation, but then we're also seeing a picture of God's judgment over sin at a greater level and are pointed to the final judgment when all God's enemies will be put under his feet. There is a day coming when all the evil will be defeated forever. And those of us who put our trust in God's promises will enter our final rest in the new and better promised land. This chapter points us forward to that reality and we will be surrounded by God's goodness forever and his his victory over sin. And we are included in that victory. So some challenges to leave you with for this week, some challenges or things to ponder. Number one, how has God been faithful to his word in your life like he has been in these chapters? He stayed true 
He stayed true to his promises that the old generation would die and that the new generation would be raised up and enter in. And how has he been faithful to his word in your life? Number two, how are you building your life rhythms and your calendar around God? Is he at the center or are you at the center? Are you taking time to stop and to remember? And then lastly, chapter 31 is showing us a picture of God's justice and his judgment over sin. And it is severe. Have you thanked Jesus for taking that judgment and that wrath for you? We are on the winning side of this battle because of Jesus's sacrifice. Because of that, we have rest and mercy and his presence. Amen. Let's pray.